Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. Cork's Red FM. You're very welcome along to the Big Red Bench this Saturday. Plenty to bring you in the next hour. It was a Cork double in Tala today. Emporium Cork and Glanmire winning the men's and women's Super League titles respectively. Uh, elsewhere, we're going to hear from Colin Healy and Shane Keegan after Cork City and Cove Ramblers two results last night. Bad day for rugby fans in Munster, the province out of Europe and Ireland beaten heavily in the women's Six Nations in Musgrave Park. Michael Foley is going to talk to us about his new book, The Children of Croke Park and Sarah McKenzie Foley. Previews the Australian Grand Prix. All of that between here and seven. Aidan Lee here with you until seven o'clock on the big red bench here on Cork's Red FM 0868104. 106 if you want to get in touch with us at Big Red Bench on Twitter is also another avenue uh, you may want to use to get in touch. Uh, as we said, big day for Cork basketball, a double in the Super League and uh, really an historic day as well, of course, for Emporium Cork who wrapped up their first ever uh, men's Super League title. So a huge day for them and uh, the climax of an amazing journey that they've been on since about 2020 uh, when things really started uh, to get going for them and of course getting promoted to the Super League and now uh, claiming the uh, claiming the title. Uh, it was a massive day of course, a double Super Saturday at the National Arena in Tela. Uh, the, they defeated Galway Mary 78-64 in the men's decider so congratulations to Emporium Cork. I was hoping to bring you some audio from that however uh, just having a bit of uh, an issue here in studio but I will have that audio for you tomorrow on on, uh, on tomorrow evening show on the Big Red Bench uh, so we'll hear from them and it's the same goes for the address UCC Glanmire a huge day for them congratulations uh, to, to both teams and to both sets of fans and everybody involved in, in both uh, basketball clubs they defeated DCU Mercy to win the Women's Super League 88-77 the final score there so really was a huge day for Cork in the National Arena in Tala I was watching both games on TG Carter as well uh, and uh, two very competitive games has to be said uh, both uh, both Cork sides um, it looks like uh, well they were they were uh, in, under a bit of pressure earlier on in the matches but they really did show their class and uh, pulled away a little later on uh, throughout the games uh, as I said not a good day for rugby, really, was it? Um, Ireland uh, beaten by France 53-3 at Mosgrave Park. Uh, disappointing for them, obviously, following up a pretty heavy defeat as well against Wales last week and a lot uh, a lot of discussion around the women's game in Ireland and, you know, there seemed to be a lot of positivity around it in recent times but it, it, I suppose they've they've been exposed to an extent here and I think you know there's a lot of issues it's, it, there's a a lot to discuss and to go into in that, in that uh, which we might uh, go into over the next couple of weeks um, but yeah not a, not a good day for Ireland in the Women's Six Nations against France not a very good day either for Munster their Champions Cup campaign came to an end in Durban they were defeated 50-35 by Sharks in their last 16 tie at Kings Park I put out a tweet on the Big Red Bench Twitter account 
asking was uh, was humiliation too strong a word to describe for that defeat because like a couple of late tries really did put a bit of you know a bit of sheen on, on the scoreboard for Munster because it was it was uh, it was probably the margin is uh, as as big as it is it, it, it was probably bigger you know what I mean the, the scoreline doesn't tell the whole story there and uh, there was uh, it was split in the comments some people agreed that humiliation probably was the right word for it but others uh, disagreed obviously it was tough as well to go away to South Africa uh, the first time there was uh, Champions Cup games played or knockout stage games played in South Africa and you know no fans or nothing for Munster and um, certainly was a tough one for them to take 50-35 is uh, a bit of a hammering isn't it um, a couple of games in Division 1 of the Red FM Hurling League in Gaelic Games uh, Douglas and Black Rock they played out a 115-18 to 18 point draw earlier on Sarsfields and Charleville are facing off in Riverstown that's underway in the last few minutes I'll keep an eye on the scores throughout the show um, elsewhere it's Allianz Football Finals weekend at Croke Park and it begins this evening with Division 4 uh, the Division 4 decider involving Wicklow and Sligo that's followed by the Division 3 clash of Cavan and Fermanagh Roscommon beat Armagh earlier 217-15 in the Allianz Hurling League Division 3A final in Navan and Cavan saw off Leitrim 17 points to 16 in the 3B final Alright, yeah, um, interesting day of Premier League action, uh, of course returning from the international break and it was a cracker to start off with, the lunchtime game was Man City versus Liverpool, the two superpowers over the past uh, five years you have to say in the Premier League and uh, it was Man City who came out on top, no whirling Haaland but Julian Alvarez made up for his absence, here's Shane Pennington. City 4, Liverpool 1 and Pep Guardiola's side closed the gap on leaders Arsenal after a dominant display here added further misery on the Liverpool side who can't seem to find any consistency. Jurgen Klopp's men did take the lead through Mo Salah but once Julian Alvarez had equalised there was only ever going to be one winner. Kevin De Bruyne made it 2-1 a minute into the second half and that was quickly followed by Ilkay Gundogan's strike to make it 3. And Jack Grealish rounded off a good afternoon for him personally and his side when he tapped home a fourth late on in the game. Manchester City 4, Liverpool 1. Liverpool boss Jurgen Klopp says his team simply weren't good enough. If you want to get something from here, then you have to to play 11 players. 14, 15 players have to be on top of their game. And that was not the case. So um, City could pretty much do what they wanted because the spaces were too big. Yeah, and of course, Liverpool took the lead in that game through Mo Salah. But uh, City just showing their class. Pep Guardiola got into a bit of a strange situation with uh, Simicast on the sideline where he pretty much just celebrated straight in his face um, after the the second City goal, I want to say, um, which was a very strange moment. I feel like someone like Josie Mourinho did that back in the day. He'd probably be getting a ban on the touchline. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if there is maybe any action taken on, on Guardiola he does have these moments doesn't he he's a bit strange at times is Guardiola seems to get away with it quite a lot um, and uh, fair enough as well I saw a few Liverpool fans saying that the outrage if, if it was Klopp that had done it now I have to say Klopp has never exactly faced much ramifications for his sideline behaviour either uh, but he certainly probably would have gotten a, a lot more stick uh, in the media for it but uh, Arsenal, they continue their run. They go, they stay eight points ahead of City. 
Um, and it was a pretty comprehensive one for them. Arsenal 4, Leeds United 1. Here's Nigel Bidmead. Arsenal 4, Leeds United 1. A seventh win in a row for Arsenal in which Gabriel Jesus scored twice. His first goal since October following the World Cup and a long injury absence. The other scorers for Arsenal were Ben White and Granit Xhaka. Leeds made it interesting when Rasmus Christensen scored on 75, but Arsenal responded with another goal. Arsenal 4, Leeds United 1. Just before we get to the rest of the results, the live game at the moment is Chelsea and Aston Villa and it's Aston Villa who lead 1-0 at Stamford Bridge with 35 minutes gone. I think it was Ollie Watkins who got the goal for Villa. I just mentioned it because uh, Bayern Munich sacked Julian Nagelsmann um, in the past couple of weeks and it's actually Thomas Tuchel who's taken over at Bayern Munich. Um, and it's going pretty well for him, obviously, Nagelsmann was sacked pretty much because they're second in the league and although I think they only lost three games in the whole season so far um, obviously Bayern Munich just uh, weren't happy with uh, the young manager so Tuchel's come in and they're beating Borussia Dortmund 3-0 and what very well could be a title decider although there's quite a long way to go yet um, but 3-0 here with 38 minutes gone to Bayern Munich that could really dent Borussia Dortmund we've seen Borussia Dortmund do this quite a lot haven't we and the first goal that uh, Bayern Munich scored it's going down as an own goal for the goalkeeper Gregor Kobel but just calamitous stuff like for Bar- for, for Borussia Dortmund Thomas Muller has scored two since so it's 3-0 there to them so Thomas Tuchel's um, first game in charge of Bayern Munich is going pretty well uh, so it'll be interesting to see what Tuchel can do with them but I mentioned Nagelsmann because I wouldn't be surprised if he's at Chelsea come the cr- next Christmas uh, really and this result at the moment 1-0 to Aston Villa isn't going to help Graham Potter much um, interesting uh, also you know Liverpool I don't know are they going to be thinking about Jurgen Klopp's future if, if they don't get top 4 at the end of this season with Nagelsmann around I don't know who, who knows who knows I think Klopp to be fair probably has a bit more credit left in the bank uh, before uh, a decision like that is made uh, elsewhere in the Premier League it was Brighton 3 Brentford 3 here's Alan Lewis it's finished Brighton 3 Brentford 3 everyone just catching their breath a stunning game of football ends all square Brighton coming back from a goal down three times in this game Matoma cancelled out Janssen's opener Tony restored the lead a minute later before Welbeck made it 2-2 at half time Pinnock but Brentford back in front just after the break but Brighton pushed forward Raya in the Brentford goal forced to into a string of good saves but then in the 90th minute Aaron Hickey handled in the box to block Dennis Undav's shot penalty given after a VAR check and Alexis McAllister scored from the spot an enthralling game both teams now press ahead of Liverpool in the Premier League it's finished Brighton 3 Brentford 3 yeah, geez, Brighton and Brentford both ahead of Liverpool after that, uh, which is quite stunning, to be fair. Um, elsewhere, it was a 1-0 draw between Forrest and Wolves. Here's Adam Jury. Nottingham Forest 1, Wolves 1. It was a tight encounter between two struggling sides where tempers regularly boiled over, including red shown to have coached on both benches and Pedence avoiding one despite appearing to spit at Johnson. But Forrest took the lead on 30 when Johnson converted from close range. From there, Wolves dominated possession. They were desperate for a leveller. It came seven minutes from time when Pedence curled past Navas to rescue a point. Full time at the City ground, finished Nottingham Forest 1, Wolves 1. 
and a massive win for Bournemouth to lift them out of the relegation zone. They defeated Fulham 2-1. Here's Peter Hood. Bournemouth 2, Fulham 1. A vital win for the home side that lifts them out of the bottom three. And the proverbial game of two halves saw them win this coming from behind. Outplayed in the first half, down by a goal from Pereira and an effort that hit the bar that could have gone in. It looked like it might not be a way back. But Tavernier came on as a second-half substitute right. Within five minutes, it equalised and turned the game on its head. And when Solanke bundled the ball in with ten minutes left, Bournemouth held on to claim three valuable points. Bournemouth two, Fulham one. And it was a late, late winner for Crystal Palace on Roy Hodge... Or, yeah, Roy Hodge... <laughs> He's Roy Hodgson's uh, Roy Hodgson's return to the Crystal Palace dugout. They defeated Leicester City two one. Here was Katsov calling the final goal. And it's Crystal Palace two Leicester one. A last minute goal from Mateta has given the host the advantage, and it looks like three points. You can hear Leicester hearts breaking all over the country. It's Crystal Palace two Leicester one. Roy Hodgson, I. Don't know why for the life of me I just decided to forget the name of Ray Hodgson there uh, for a second. But uh, yeah, a uh, big win for him. Uh, the oldest ever manager in Premier League history. So uh, interesting uh, that they were able to get uh, a win on his first start. Uh, let's bring up the table now as uh, we look at that. City or uh, United playing United tomorrow. <laughs> Manchester United versus Newcastle United. Uh, so it's Arsenal on top, as I said, eight points clear of Man City. Uh, interesting to see what happens with Spurs now going forward obviously on the hunt for a new manager Brighton still in the hunt for uh, for Europe along with Newcastle United if Newcastle United lose tomorrow pretty much that could be their top four hopes done and it would essentially seal you imagine as well United's top four uh, if they were to pick up three points Liverpool down to eighth um, at the moment with Chelsea down 1-0 they'll be down to 11th uh, but like I said that win for Crystal Palace was huge because it's lifted them up to 12th place they're on 30 points now they're eight behind Chelsea who are ahead of them in the table and uh, amazing what a, a win has done for Bournemouth also it's uh, taken them to 15th now it is you've Southampton on 23 points at the bottom of the table and between them and 13th place is five points. Basically, Wolves are on 28 points. So, you know, a couple of results could absolutely flip that bottom six or seven totally on its head. Um, the same goes for the Premier Division of the League of Ireland, uh, Cork City. Unfortunately, just uh, not able to, to get over the line for a victory uh, last night against Drogheda United at Turner's Cross. Rory Keating opened the scoring in 17 minutes and Ali Gilchrist, really unfortunate own goal on 40 minutes. Colm O'Sullivan was there for us last night. He was talking to Colin Healy after the game. Colin, one all draw against Drogheda tonight. What did you make of it? Um, it was a tough game. Um, the pitch was soft. Um, so it was it was a scrap. Um, we knew that. We knew that. Um, listen, draw they're they're a good side. Um, they've got good experience in the middle of the park, and they've got you know, the boy Rooney out a wide left is, is decent as well. Like so, we knew what the game would be about. Um, it's a lot of direct balls up centre backs and <laughs> dealing with headers and picking up seconds and all that kind of stuff. It was a scrappy game. It was a scrappy game. Um, thought second half we probably we had the better chances um, we just didn't take them we didn't take them and um, yeah it's 
bit unfortunate that way. Listen, we, we've got the point, um, but I feel that you know we we could we could have won it with the chances that we had. I think it's two points left behind. I mean, is it frustrating to create those chances no, and then not score them? I mean, you'd say something if you weren't creating them at all. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's uh, yeah, it's um, we had the chances and it's just we just didn't get on the end of it. I know they had one cleared off the line and um, one came across the post, and I think it could be more for the back. And Bagsy had a shot, and we had we had chances. We just didn't put the ball in the back of the net and it was, it's probably the hardest part to do in, in, in football but um, listen give, give credit to the lads listen they never gave up um, so yeah I'd, we felt two points drop but listen we'll, we'll move on and listen we've got a big game next week against Pats Rory Keating scored again tonight he's, he's a good man to get the goals recently isn't he he is yeah no listen he's um, he's um, he can be very aggressive in the air do you know um, do you know he's, he's got a great header um, and he has that in him Um and just in the second sometimes it just felt that sometimes when we were we weren't getting bodies up around him he listen taking a gamble off him because he does win fair fair majority of his headers do you know so um, yeah no listen he, he, he took his goal well tonight and you know he was probably unlucky maybe not to have another one there in the second half like, but um, yeah 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 we, we always we always want more from Keats he's got he's got so much ability he has and uh, um, another goal for him and uh, it's great for him uh, disappointed for Ali Gilchrist as well with the own goal I mean he's normally a fairly solid fella at the back and it was just just something that was it was almost unavoidable the way it kind of happened wasn't it yeah no listen these things happen it happens um, I think we could have dealt probably better leading up to that part of it do you know so um, these things happen listen we, we can't do anything we can't do anything about that um, listen all you have to do is just just probably just look forward you know in, in the second half and make sure that you know that we we go and win the second half and um, listen, we had the chances and we gave it everything we got listen the the pitch listen it's it's it's, it's soft it cuts up it's had a lot of rain the last days, isn't it? it has it has and you know listen I know they, they do great work here but it is it is soft and um, you can see it and there is it there is a few bobs on it so there was a few loose passes here and there like but it, ha- it happens but we had the chances as I said, we, we, we should have won the game, but it is what it is. You can see like how tough every game is. We, we spoke about it before the start of the season. There wasn't going to be an easy game in the Premier Division. No matter who you're playing, it's it's a really tough game, home or away, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, Premier League, there's no, there's no easy teams. As I said, it's a, it's a tough game every week. Um, and and the players should enjoy that. You know, listen, you're playing against the best and you got to go and test yourself. So, um, yeah, it's uh, and listen, we got another... Tough week coming up, you know. We got Pats, and then we were, we got Dundalk here, and then we're away to UCD. So um, we got to get the players ready, get them focused, and um, and go and put on some performances next week. Thanks, Colin. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, Colin Healy there speaking to Colm O'Sullivan after their one-all draw, Cork City's one-all draw with Drogheda United at Turner's Cross last night. Uh, just an update to bring you on the Red FM Division 1 hurling league clash between Charleville and Sarsfields halfway through the first half. It's Charleville 5 points, Sarsfields 3. Uh, elsewhere, it's an All-Ireland affair, of course, at the Aviva Stadium where Leinster are taking on Ulster in the Champions Cup and uh, the halftime whistle has just gone there it is Leinster who leads 16 points to 8 um, and of course Connacht knocked out by uh, Benetton 42-19 in the Challenge Cup a little later on so all round although we will have one Irish winner guaranteed out of Leinster and Ulster pretty bad day bad day for the Ireland provinces um, you know off the back of winning a Grand Slam going down to South Africa and get a, getting that uh, you know, getting taken apart 
by the Sharks for Munster was a real killer blow and uh, it's it's difficult for they have they have a couple of of, uh, of URC games coming up as well and you know do they stay in South Africa for, for a couple of weeks which they probably will now have to be knocked out I think if they progress they're going to have to come home to play so logistically the South Africa thing is becoming a bit of an issue um, and it's one that maybe with, with experience with time you know it might get better and provinces will be able to, to deal with it better but uh, it's certainly for the fans. I mean, it's not exactly great. Who was time to go down to South Africa? It's not like it's not like hopping over to Leicester for a game. You know, going down to South Africa, you got to take a week off work for that. Like, uh, so it's uh, it's a difficult one for fans. And um, I don't know the Champions Cup and the RC now. Really, they, they've they've kind of they've really loaded up on, on this South Africa stuff and bringing in the South African teams and um, you just wonder how good for the competition is it in the long run um, yeah, I don't I don't see the French teams <laughs> I don't see them uh, enjoying going down to South Africa because they, they, they barely come over to Ireland to play the games uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward uh, elsewhere uh, Cove Ramblers were also in action last night in the League of Ireland first division and uh, it was a much better result for them uh, Brendan Frahill he scored on both ends he got one in the 40th minute and uh, scored an own goal another own goal for, for a Cork side uh, he scored an own goal in the 51st minute uh, but the deadlock was broken the winner was scored by Wilson Wawero for Cove Ramblers against 10 man Bray Wonders John O'Shea was down in Cove a brilliant 2-1 win here at home to Bray Wonders in St. Coleman's Park a game that really had everything but you must be delighted first of all with the three points absolutely delighted Tom yeah um yeah, it was, it was, as you say, I don't know where to start, it was an interesting game, that's for sure. Um, I thought we were decent in the first half, I would have given us probably 8 out of 10, um, I thought we did pretty well. Bray are by far and away the most possession-based team in the league, um, I was looking at White Scout today, they have more than 50 passes, or sorry, more than 500 passes played more than the next highest passing team. So we knew that, so we worked on that all week about how we were going to try and press and send them in certain directions and triggers and stuff like that and I just I thought we did that really really well and made it very very hard for them to play um, and we upped that again I, I would give us a 9 out of 10 for the second half we did that even better and that's even before they had the man sent off um, we were making them kick to, like our, our three centre halves have ended up with a pain, all with pains in their heads because of the amount of ball long ball we made them force towards the end um, which was exactly the plan exactly the plan really and the boys just carried it out perfectly yeah and it was a bit of a roller coaster of a game the early goal uh, from Brendan a brilliant header won it up with the break you must be delighted but then of course they get the early goal in the second half so to come back from that it shows a good sign of character it does um, again like last week we showed character last week in terms of turning it around um, we showed character in two ways again this week I think the response to a goal which look I don't know lads maybe I'll be proven wrong it, it looked a blatant handball to me in the build up like I say I might be wrong but certainly at the time I was absolutely fuming I, I, I couldn't understand how it wasn't given under the handball um, and of course typically they go and score from that but our response to that was was absolutely super it really really was um, I think we were maybe losing our rag on the sideline a little bit but the lads on the pitch never lost their, their control at all they just got back to doing the job um, as best as they possibly could in the manner that we asked um, and got their just rewards yeah 
and then moving on I suppose to a big incident the red card the penalty uh, Jack he's top scorer in the division he's missed two penalties so I suppose we, we have to leave him off on that one but uh, even with the missed penalty Wilson a minute later gets the goal and, and you must be delighted then yeah that's that's two weeks in a row thankfully that we've managed to score within a couple of minutes of missing a penalty so it takes the sting out of it a, a little bit so it does um, look like you say Jack has been absolutely outstanding for us this year the only foot he's set wrong is the two penalties that's for sure but he'll be a, he'll be annoyed himself that's 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 a, a sure thing as well but no look I mean in terms of the penalty obviously look it had to be a penalty and it had to be a red card um, so it did I just thought how Dale managed to send the ball the entire length of the field off his weaker foot um, was superb it was superb you know he was trying to dig us out of a hole at left back and, and basically put a superb ball over the top now Willie gets a little bit of luck obviously with the keeper making a bit of a hands of it but you only get that luck if you're going chasing down lost causes and uh I was just so happy for Willie then to be the one who gets the goal because he's done brilliantly in terms of his work rate to earn the penalty for us, which obviously we spurned that chance. Um, but yeah, look, it was, as I, as I say, look, you could start talking about different individuals all over the pitch. You know? And then finally, looking ahead to next week, a big derby here at home to Waterford. They have a new manager. They got a bit of a bounce today against Harris, so that really should be a cracker. A, a bit of a bounce is an understatement of sorts. <laughs> um, so it is. Yeah, look. I don't know why it didn't quite click for Danny. You looked at the panel, uh, the squad that 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 Waterford put together at the start of the season, and to me it looked like a, a league-winning squad. Um, I'm not sure why it didn't quite click for Danny, but Keith is a superb manager. He's got in there. He's got a really excellent group of players under under him. And uh, look, I I will be stunned if 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 Waterford don't get himself back into the tight race with Galway. Thanks, Shane. Well done again. Yeah, I think there's even one thing to say Tom there's a big game as well you know even with the equaliser that's one overall that must be been impressive thing you're seeing this season maybe how the team in game how to, in, in the situations like how they're managing and how they, how they respond to certain scenarios yeah, yeah yeah, very very true yeah no look there is there's there's a lot of game know-how on the pitch and to be honest with you the most pleasing thing tonight probably about John is probably the man with the most game know-how is, is Abo and, and Abo is, is, is out um, so he is so to be able to you know to be able to show the game smarts that we did and manage the game as well as we did without Abo on the field was very very pleasing yeah very like, and even I know there's still one or two games still left in the first quarter of the season but even at this stage I think in, in terms of points totals like, I think it's it, 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 it gathered the, the total amount that he would have left the whole last season so that kind of even shows even at this kind of quarter first quarter stage of the season the progress that the club have made really yeah yeah I look it's been chalk or cheese from last year but to be fair to the, to the to the board when I came in last year you know they did very much give me a very clear remit that look you know you're only going to be able to do so much between now and the end of the season really it's about having a look around and trying to figure out what you need to do to have us more competitive next year um, and they've backed me in that sense in terms of trying to make us more competitive and uh, look so far so good I suppose yeah and you know that kind of way, you know, against against the brave side as well. That probably many people would have ducked maybe in the top two, two three, or four on the table as well. That, that, that it, it kind of says wonders up the for, for your own side to get a win tonight. Yeah, they? Oh, look, they will finish top three or four. To be fair, they absolutely will. Um, as I say, they've been they've been you know certainly the most possession based side in in the division. I think they were they were unbeaten up until tonight. I think weren't they? Um, so no, look, they're they're a fine fine side, and uh, 
we you know we made it as tough as we possibly could for them and I, I, I think to be honest with you on the balance of chances obviously given the missed penalty and everything I think we, we, we deserve the result that we got I think they'd, they'd do well to argue otherwise and then um, I think over the next couple of weeks now and next month there's, there's a good number of home games for, for yourselves so like they'd be open so it's, it's a good opportunity to kind of build the momentum I mean, with the crowd we see tonight as well it's, it's, probably, good, it's probably well community even by I think four the next six at home as well so that's probably good yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And obviously, look, I know it might be a more minor tournament, but we also have another Munster Senior Cup final to look forward to as well, which is 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 great. Um, yeah, look, it's 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 an exciting time, but I'm just wary nobody, you know, nobody needs to get carried away with themselves. Um, you know, our aim was to try and be in contention for a playoff spot at the come the, the last round of games. That is still our primary aim, um, and you know, we're in a very good position in terms of working towards that aim, and that's the aim that we will stay focused on. And um, you know, certainly, I don't think anybody will be getting getting overly carried away with things. Very good. Yeah, and just, just to find, you know, after the, the Munster derby, we touched on next week against them against Waterford, so like, uh, the, those kind of derby game, it's probably so. Bank, it's very bank holiday weekend to be open for another big crowd as well and got a good Friday uh, definitely look there's, there's no excuse for not having a big turnout last week look we were disappointed we got a big turnout for the Galway game two weeks ago and we were poor that night um, and that's why it was so so important that we delivered a performance tonight to get uh, support back behind us because you know if you put three or four bad two or three bad ones in a row you know maybe the, the gates drop a bit but no it was a good turnout again tonight a good performance result from us so you'd imagine that'll have the domino, the domino effect of, of another good turnout next Friday night all going well yeah and obviously, maybe it's, 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 obviously it was obviously the first game from for Keith Long for tea, but I suppose you'll know all too well as well. Like, like probably some of the Bohemians and right throughout the league. Like, so they, they, I suppose they're getting a pretty good manager at Warford. I suppose they could be. I suppose you'll probably know what kind of a side to be facing in that sense. Oh, listen, Keith, fantastic manager, and I keep very well. I did my pro license with Keith. He's a gentleman, so he is. He's an, uh, an outstanding job at Bohemians. Uh, still don't think, to be honest, I still don't think it's quite got the credit it deserves. Just how how well they did. Um, you know, consistently finishing in those top four positions despite, you know, budget probably dedicating they should be in the bottom half of the league. And Watford looked it was a no brainer to be honest with you when I heard Danny was gone, um, my instant reaction is Keith, Keith Long will be will be the manager there. Um, and so approved in a very short period of time and he's got him off to a great start and I'm sure they'll continue to go well for the rest of the season. Co-Rounders boss Shane Keegan there speaking with John O'Shea who was down in co-first and uh, that victory for Co-Rounders puts them second. They're seven behind, uh, seven points behind Galway United and uh, put them ahead of Bray Wonders in the table. Kerry FC are playing Longford Town this evening and uh, as the lads were mentioning there, Keith Long taking over Waterford. <laughs> A huge win, 7-1 for them. Some start for Keith Long and it's Co-Rounders versus Waterford next week uh, so uh, certainly going to be an interesting one there between Cove Ramblers and Waterford FC alright coming up after the break we're going to hear from Michael Foley who's going to talk to us about his new book The Children of Croke Park it's coming out on Monday it's a really great chat um, he's a fascinating man to talk to is Michael Foley obviously uh, he, everyone here or everyone listening uh, will be well aware of him fantastic journalist and a great author as well he's done fantastic work around Bloody Sunday in 1920 and this book follows on all of that fantastic work he's done around the centenary and of course the bloodied field uh, back in 2014 as he uh, tells us uh, in the chat so stay tuned for that The Big Red Bench Saturday and Sunday from 6pm Miss the show? Grab the Big Red Bench podcast at redfm.ie 
Cork's Red FM. You're very welcome back to the big red bench here on Cork's Red FM. Aidan Lee here with you until 7 o'clock. All right, we're going to hear now from Michael Foley. He has a new book coming out on Monday and uh, I have to say I highly recommend it. It's a great read. The Children of Croke Park. I spoke to him this morning about it and uh, he's, uh, as he explains, he's a bit a uh, mixture of nerves and excitement ahead of the release on Monday. All right, I'm delighted to be joined now by Michael Foley, author of The Children of Crow Park. Obviously, The Bloodied Field as well. This follows up that fantastic book. Before we talk about the book itself, what's it like to be an author on the eve of release? Like, will this weekend fly by for you or will you be checking the watch ticking down the next couple of days? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's kind of weird. Anytime, like, this is my, this is the fourth book I've been involved in now. And what I find is, like as an author, you get you you get a copy maybe two or three weeks before it comes out. So the copy arrives in. Normally, I wouldn't even look at it. I, I wouldn't even open it. And but we've I've four kids here, so it's not long before their envelope gets ripped open and the book is taken out. But even now, we'll say with it coming out, uh, I won't open that book for at least six weeks or more because. Uh, it's a mixture of anxiety and nerves and hoping that you did as good a job as you could and that everything that you wanted to say, that you've said it and, and that you've told the story in the best way you can. And I often say it's, it's doing a book is the same as making a record or any, anything really creative or anything like that. Or once you do it and once it's gone out, it kind of ceases to be yours to some degree. It's now determined by, well, to some degree anyway, it's determined by how people react and whether they like it or not. And sometimes the stuff that you think people will really like is not the thing they go for at all. It could be something completely random that you never thought of in the book that they, it'll be the thing that they might like or might not like or whatever. So, yeah, I'd say um, just almost trying to avoid that it's even happening, to be honest, <laughs> apart, from, apart from having conversations like this, you know. Absolutely. And uh, The Children of Croke Park follows up The Incredible Bloodied Fields. Uh, this time for, for a much younger audience to be able to learn about this massive event. Has that always been a big aim for you to be able to tell this story to the younger generations? Absolutely. Funny you should say it. Funny you should say it because even when I was writing The Bloodied Field, which is out, that came out nine years ago now in 2014. And like that was three years of work, we'll say, from 2011 to 14. But even during that time, I, I often thought I'd really like to do a version of this for children because I thought, that you know, we, Telling stories like this is a great way to get people interested in their history and in their past and stuff like that, rather than just the dry nuts and bolts details that you often get in textbooks and stuff, to actually bring people to an event by by stories. So like that it would definitely was, and it was even more, I suppose, amplified for me during the centenary in twenty twenty. So that was at the end of November. People might remember it, it was like we had there was a there was a commemoration in Crow Park and it was there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a TV documentary and lots of other stuff around the Bloody Sunday event itself. But the thing that struck me was around that time, I got a, I got a good few um, invitations to talk via Zoom. Obviously, we were in lockdown at the time, but via Zoom to primary schools. And you'd, you'd, you'd click in to the Zoom call and it would be set up that you could see the classroom behind and all the kids. And you'd see all the projects up on the walls and all the names of the people and that was a really profound moment for me because I felt, God, the whole point of the Bloody Field and the Bloody Sunday Project was to get the names of these people back to the centre of the story. And here I was looking at primary school classrooms 
with pictures and the names and their stories up on walls and children talking about them. And it really was an amazing thing to see. And that kind of, again, that, that ignited that idea about is there a way to tell this story for children probably between, you know, sort of eight or nine up into their early teens that might bring them into this story and maybe make them interested in other stories as well. Um, and then the opportunity came in actually early the following year. So I was more than ready, more than ready to give it a go. Like we know so much more about it now, about the events of Bloody Sunday in 1920, thanks to the work that you've done. And like that's inspired, like you said, so much, so many other projects and like, it's hard to state how big a moment it was in our nation's history and like the impact that it still has on people today. Well, that, you know, that was part of the motivation even at the time, excuse me, you know, whatever it is now, 12, 13 years ago, to start into this because I felt that when you looked into that event, and as you say, it was a massive event, people didn't really know the detail. They didn't know the names of the victims. Didn't even know really know what happened. They had an idea of what happened. And the Michael Collins movie was usually the one that, you know, the reference point. So going through that and and putting meat on the bones of the story was one thing. But, you know, it always kind of struck me that um, the children always jumped out to me. And I mean, you know, I I would be at pains to say that no no death is more significant than any other, particularly on a day like Bloody Sunday when 14 people are, are, are shot and killed, you know, during a football game. It's desperate. Obviously, though, there is something... There is an element when you have a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old who go to a match and they don't come home. And, you know, there's a particular type of trauma and a particular type of tragedy. And you mentioned there, like, about how it's how it's reverberated through the years. Not just even as a memory, aid, and it's, it's, it's a memory for the families and how it affected the families. And it shaped them, it shaped them all, whether they knew it or not. I mean, we I've met a lot of families over the last few years and it's only when we start talking about their relative and what happens to them and then what happened to the relatives' relatives through the decades that you realise that oftentimes that moment in Crow Park where their relative was killed, it reverberated through that family and shaped a lot about that family all the way up through the years. Um, so when you apply that to children, and it certainly did in the case of the three families, it really did uh, shape those families in profound ways as the years went on. We might touch on on the three uh, the three boys themselves in just a second, but I think the like the the line that's uh, it's in on the back of the book that that war wouldn't come to Croke Park, would it? It's like that that is kind of the, it encapsulates everything because people like from from reading the the start of the book, you get that sense of them just kind of go people going about their lives as normal. You know, they they've separated the attacks by Michael Collins' men and the fact that any retaliation could ever come to and take place against civilians. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, to even getting to that mindset, it's not that hard for us even now. You can imagine, like, just imagine, I mean, we've, like, a lot of us, all of us maybe have been to Crow Park at some stage, not even for a match, could be for a gig or some event of some sort, right? And you know the excitement and the thrill that it is, even just the anticipation of the day out, now, when I'm going to yeah. go back, just the day out, the crack and everything that goes with it. That would have been the same for the people in 1920, which was why it was so unthinkable that something as awful as a massacre could occur there. Because it just wouldn't, even in the run up to the match, there was warnings that it could happen. Um, people on the trams going to the match and all the rest of it were saying, well, that's happened in one place. And it was it was a trend of the War of Independence at that, at that stage that 
if there was one atrocity in one place, there would be a reprisal. So people on the trams and around the city were going, well, where are the, where are the police, does the, the army going to strike? No one seriously thought it would be Crow Park, which only, you know, it kind of adds, you know, it just turns the volume up on the terror when you're standing there and you genuinely are not expecting anything. And the next thing, firing for 90 seconds, 14 people left killed. And Crow Park itself, you know, changed for posterity. Um, the GA tied to that place forever um, and all and all the rest of it that, that, that it entailed. But yeah, like no one seriously thought that the war would ever come to Crow Park, as you wouldn't, but it did. You mentioned, of course, the book focuses on these three children. Could you give us their a bit of their background story and how you began putting their stories together on the page? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there was three children on the day were killed. Uh, Jerome O'Leary, who was 10 years of age from the inner city, William Robinson from 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 Little Britain Street as well in the inner city, and uh, John William Scott, who was called Billy. He was fourteen years of age, and he lived up on Fitzroy Avenue, which is literally the feast. He lived on number at number fifteen. If you stand out from number fifteen, Fitzroy Avenue, and you kick a ball down that road, you'd hit Crow Park. So he was that close. Um, and yeah, like I mean, they were they were they were kids like anybody else going to a game, you know. I mean, and you can imagine as well. I mean, they went to the matches by themselves. Uh, Billy Scott had a friend with him, but they were both kids. So, I mean, you can imagine the excitement of going on your own at 10 or 11 and 14 or so, going going to a match. Um, they went to the game. William Robinson was sitting up in a tree, which would have been at the corner of uh, the Hogan stand, we'll say, and the canal end, as we'd know, no, the Davin stand, there was trees there, and he was sitting up in a tree. And Jerome O'Leary then was sitting along the wall. He actually went into the game, and he was so small he couldn't see. So someone picked him up and put him on the back wall that ran along where the canal end is now. So he was sitting there and Billy Scott was in there somewhere as well. When the fire, before the firing started, William Robinson actually heard the trucks coming up behind him on the canal bridge outside. If people can kind of in their heads and think of the geography, the canal bridge outside, the trucks arrive, he hears the rattle of the trucks, he turns around and as he's turning around, uh, a shot rings out and he's the first one who's hit. Jerome O'Leary was the second one who was hit. And then in the panic afterwards, Billy Scott was hit with a ricocheted bullet. Um, and I mean, you know, the, the stories of their their deaths are just are just terrible. I mean, uh, William Robinson's last son until the Tuesday, uh, Jerome dies almost instantly. Um, and Billy Scott is taken to someone's a neighbor's house, and there's you know the, just the awfulness of his father coming out of the house, which keep remember is right beside Crow Park, going around to neighbours going, have you seen my son? And eventually finding him uh, or finding out where he was and then following on to the hospital to find him. And um, it's just, dev- it, some, some of the scenes are, are fairly devastating, um, but that's how it was. That's how it was for those families. And that's how it was for the people on that day. Yeah, like you said, per- Perry, who, as he's known, in, in, like in the book, William Robinson in the tree, like, that point of view he gives us, like he's our match reporter as well uh, until he, he turns around and like it's a really chilling kind of paragraph or so. Um, and like you said as well, the thing that I suppose people always kind of forget is how quickly it all happened. Like the the event that Perry tells us is literally maybe a page of, of the description and like it's it's incredible the description you go into the detail and that kind of claustrophobic element as well when he does fall off the tree like... It, it it really takes you into the story, and um, I think he's uh obviously he's on the on the front of the book as well. But like uh, his his story, I suppose, kind of particularly maybe obviously must have stuck with you as well. 
Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, all the stories stuck with me for different reasons, but for that, the fact that he was in the tree and he, he spoke a little bit after after getting shot and we have the, we have the record of what he said and the little conversation he had on the way to the hospital and, and, and all the rest. And we can build a little picture of the guy and, excuse me in the year since we've managed to get photographs of all three so there's there's drawings of them you, you they start to become very real i can remember i'll come back to william in a minute but i just i just remember uh, sitting in a newspaper library many years ago in london and and flicking a page on a microfilm of an old tabloid newspaper from the time and finding a picture of jerome o'leary and to that point i never thought i didn't imagine that i would even see photographs of these people and suddenly there he was, you know. Um, but like, yeah, coming, coming, coming back to to William Robinson. Yeah, grew up in the inner city. Eleven years of age, went up himself. Had 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 the smarts to climb a tree when he knew that he'd be too small to see anything, you know. And uh, he was there, and and you know, came from a came from a family of came from a family of soccer players of of army people, but also Republicans. In a lot of ways, he was his story. His his family story and everything is a real cross section of 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 how views were in that kind of war of independence civil war time, where even within families there was differing viewpoints on things and people took made decisions to get involved or not get involved or whatever. Um, but uh, he was, yeah, he, he, he very much, and and you know also the only the only person with surviving family left of the three, um, and I was hugely. I mean, I got I got a little help. I got a little help from. Uh, from a relative of his actually who lives in Cork, who, who, you know, who I mentioned the acknowledgements and, you know, I'd be hugely, hugely, um, appreciative of the support of, of all the families down the years, but particularly for, for, for this one with, with, with William Robinson being able to, to bring him back. That was the other thing as well. Like, I mean, you mentioned there the description. I suppose there was a challenge around trying to tell the story sometimes in the first person, sometimes not in the first person. But I felt William was the one you could tell in the first person because you could, I, I suppose there was something about his story that uh, that made me feel, yeah, we need to hear his voice and he can bring us through. He can bring us through the story uh, without it getting too heavy, without it, without yeah. overloading the reader with, with too much. But, you know, he's just an 11 year old boy telling you what happened on a day, on a big day like that seemed to kind of seem the right thing to do. Absolutely. Michael, the, the book is really, really good. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, it's out on Monday, The Children of Croke Park. I suppose, tell us how, how people can get their hands on it. You're Hopefully right. all good and bad bookshops on Monday. Um, and uh, yeah, you can you can pre-order, you can get it online as well at O'Brien.ie. So uh, yeah, as you know, hopefully people will get it and enjoy it. Absolutely. Like I said, highly recommend it. Really enjoyed flicking through it for this chat and uh, look forward to giving it a proper read now as well, uh, now that I have a bit more time. So, uh, Michael Foley, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you on The Bigger Bench. Oh, pleasure. Thanks a million, Ed. Yeah, fantastic stuff. It's uh, it really is an incredible book, and like that, if, if you have any kids interested in getting to know about uh, Irish history, you know, eight or nine years of age, like like Michael said, it's a brilliant way for them uh, to get started. And of course, it's uh, two two of my uh, great loves, history and the GA as well, all in one uh, fantastic story. Well done to uh, Michael Foley, and uh, wish him all the best with the book. Um, I mentioned Nagelsmann being at Chelsea by Christmas. He might be there next week. It's Aston Villa 2, Chelsea nil with an hour gone at Stamford Bridge. John McGinn has doubled Villa's lead. So Graham Potter, he'll be sweating for the next week or so. All right, we have got some audio from Tala, Kieran O'Sullivan. Um, I actually interviewed Kieran 
back in February 2020. I think it was the first ever interview I did here in Red FM when I started working here. It was after they got promoted to the Super League. Himself and Andre Nation popped into studio um, way, way back, three years, over three years ago. Um, but he was speaking to Basketball Ireland after Emporium Cork sealed the men's Super League title. Kieran, I know you probably won't be able to, but just sum up your thoughts at this moment. Like the crowd there, amazing at the end, the celebrations out of this world. Yeah, amazing. Amazing support, I suppose. We're all in a bit of shock, you know. It's. Uh Six years ago, we were in the third tier of basketball, really. Our, our top team in the club was playing um, local league in Cork, Division 1, Division 2. So in six years, you know, three years National League, a year of COVID, and now our second year Super League to be to be top of the summit. It's just, it's just amazing, really, you know. Um, yeah, just can't really put into words at the moment. It's just, yeah, just just amazing scenes there at the end. Euphoric, really, and emotional as well, you know. Because even the journey of getting to the playoffs, like having to go through the rigmarole on the last day of the regular season and they, like just getting in as the fourth seed, like to be here the, today was amazing. So. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and maybe that was a bit misguided. You know, we did have injuries, we did have illnesses. And I suppose what, what tweaked for us is... I think the guys are, are probably playing for something more than themselves, you know. Um, we lost three grandparents, Keelan lost his grandmother, Paul lost his grandfather, and Ronan lost his, his granddad there, it all all just coming into the Cup semi-final. Um, Mr Buckley there would be really proud of Ronan today. Uh, and then we had Colum's brother, Garrett Blunt, passed away in February as well. Ronnie Hurley, who, who passed away the year before last, um, and Owen Collar, he's in our thoughts as well. So I think the guys are just playing for something more than themselves. We got that emotion right. We, we got our bodies right. And, and we felt talent-wise then. We had, we had enough to mix it with anyone, and we're here. <laughs> we're champs. Yeah, Kieran O'Sullivan there speaking after Emporium Cork sealed the Super League title. All right, we're going to finish up with some Formula One chat. I spoke to Sarah McKenzie following qualifying. Of course, early start for the Australian Grand Prix. It's Max Verstappen on pole for tomorrow morning's race. And uh, Sarah McKenzie is going to tell us all about what we can expect on track. All right, Sarah McKenzie Foley is on the line to look ahead to an early start tomorrow for the Australian Grand Prix. And uh Quite, uh, quite an interesting quality session as well today in preparation for that. Uh, Sarah, first of all, thanks a bit for joining us on the Big Red Bench. Yeah, absolutely. Always happy to, to chat up one. Uh, I suppose let's start off with, I, I guess, the, the main championship news, which is the it's the battle between the two Red Bull drivers, essentially, so mm-hmm. far this season. Anyway, an absolute shocker for Checo. Sergio Perez going off track in Q1. He's going to start right at the back of the grid. So the pendulum swings back towards Max Verstappen, who's going to be on pole. Absolutely. And to be honest, Checo is lucky to actually be able to allow, allow to start the race at all because there's a rule that you have to be within 107% of the time of the person that set the fastest time in qualifying. And he actually had to get an exception because he missed that. As you say, he beached his car. So he's sort of lucky to be starting it all. I think he was having problems all weekend at that corner, turn three, and he just essentially kind of messed it up again. But he also pointed to an issue that had been recurring with the car. We don't know exactly what that is, but you have to say there was definitely an an element of driver error there as well. So he seems just very frustrated at the moment. 
Yeah, and it, it is a shame as well because I it it doesn't look like anybody's going to be able to keep Max Verstappen in in their view for for this race because mm. in Saudi Arabia and I know they're they're probably very different tracks, but like it, it, the Mercedes was absolutely no no match at all for the pace of Red Bull. So you expect Max is going to really pull away from uh, Russell and Hamilton and Alonso as well in the chasing pack. Yeah, I think so. I think the race potentially still though has it can deliver the excitement that we've kind of been waiting for this season because I think the Aston Martins, the Ferraris and the Mercedes, that that kind of area of the grid could get quite spicy. And I think hopefully, depending on how Sergio Perez is able to come through the pack during the race, you might have him added to that mix as well. And also, it has to be mentioned, Nico Hulkenberg and Alex Albon had fantastic qualifying. Now, I don't know if they had a, a specific quality set up going on in their car which means they would have slower race pace tomorrow but I think aside from Max as you say probably pulling away you know all things going well at turn one I think we st- we could potentially still get quite an interesting race I think tomorrow Verstappen as well still kind of divides opinion now obviously it's uh, F1 fandom can be very uh it can be very impartial, let's say, you know, guys can uh, <laughs> guys can get a bit overboard and like there's a lot of people who, who don't accept any of, of Max Verstappen's two championship wins. Um, but mm-hmm. he's starting to show now that he, like obviously he has the better car, but it's a bit like what Hamilton was doing for the last couple of years of the Mercedes yeah. dominance, pulling out two tenths to, to go clear under very little pressure in Q3. Like that is very Hamilton-esque. It is absolutely, and I think the two one thing the two of them have in common is that they'll still even at that level they'll compete with themselves. You know, like Max was annoyed last week, even though he had a great result because the qualifying, for example, wasn't perfect. So those kind of drivers at that level are always trying to put together the perfect weekend. And I think once they get into that space of being so far ahead of everyone else, really they're themselves are their only kind of competitor at that point. So I think, you know, obviously the circumstances, as you said, of Max's two championships weren't squeaky clean, but I don't think that necessarily takes away from his ability as a driver. I do think he is still absolutely super talented and I do think he's definitely going to win. You would think this year, probably a championship and, and maybe even more in the future, who knows? Um, yeah, and even like there was talk of him going and, and doing a clean sweep this year, obviously until until last mm. week, which is it may be a good thing that that Perez actually won that race to kind of uh, banish that sort of narrative because that uh, could become annoying in itself. Um, looking at the Mercedes, then like George Russell is uh, flexing the muscles a small bit, and mm. it would be a, a already I suppose a victory for him in qualifying, qualifying ahead of Hamilton, but you know finishing ahead of him again tomorrow would just. I suppose cement him as uh, maybe, you know, Toto Wolf is, is looking at George as their main man and uh, Lewis is starting to fight a bit of an uphill battle. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they're obviously at pretty much opposite points of their career, you know, uh, like Lewis is coming towards probably the last couple of years in the sport, whether George, whereas George is still very much at the beginning and it's his first time really having a decent car under him. So I think he's he's obviously gunning for, for every result he can get. You know, we saw that last week, last race where he was saying, oh, I thought Alonso had a penalty. That's why I didn't, you know, kind of make it easier for Lewis to get past me. So at the end of the day, he's, he's you know, these guys are ultimate competitors. And I think he's also very, very consistent, which for a Formula One team is a huge sell 
on a driver and I think he's going to be I think he's going to be a massive contender for the future definitely as long as Mercedes can can give him a car where he can actually pull that performance out of it because he definitely has the talent you mentioned Fernando Alonso he's probably having the the dream start to the season obviously taking mm. a risk on moving teams he all he wants to do really is have one last season where he's competitive and he's doing that and uh, another chance for a podium as well depending on how tomorrow goes you would think so yeah and I think look out for Lance Stroll as well because you know they do have a, a similar car underneath them obviously you would say Fernando Alonso is a, a higher caliber of driver than Stroll but he's shown kind of some good indicators I think you're right with Fernando he we were kind of confused when he decided he was moving to Aston Martin because obviously we hadn't seen the the sort of secret sauce that he saw that they were working on behind the scenes but they've had a fantastic start to the season and I absolutely wouldn't be surprised if they were competing for a podium again tomorrow like I say I think that Aston Martin Ferrari Mercedes mix could be really really interesting you imagine the the main narrative if Verstappen does pull chair in the race will be how far Perez can get from the back of the grid and he's mm-hmm. going to come through all those interesting little stories such as he's going to have to pass out McLaren who are having an absolute stinker so far uh, since yeah. the season started. How far do you think Perez can get up or will he maybe trip over all of those uh, drivers such as Norris that are going to be in his way as he tries to get back uh, into into the big points? Well, he's historically been amazing with managing his tyres. He's kind of the king of that amongst the grid. And I think he's definitely going to have to do that tomorrow because even all the weekend, the drivers have kind of struggled to get the tyres up to temperature and the weather has been very changeable. So I think if he can get that right and as long as, you know, whatever issues he is having, as long as they can put in a shift overnight to try and kind of pull those back a little bit I think you could see him get up towards the podium but definitely he's going to have to as you said work his way through all the other battles that are happening because I do think it's going to be very competitive Um, there's a fourth DRS zone on the track for the first time ever in a Formula 1 race uh, in Australia this weekend so potentially that could help him as well you know he's going to have that straight line speed so I think there's, there's definitely potential for him there but he's going to have a lot of work to do tomorrow yeah, and it's an early start, so uh, set the alarm clock and uh, hopefully <laughs> it's going to be a really competitive race. Sarah Mackenzie Foley, thanks a million for talking us through that. Thanks so much, in. Yeah, Sarah Mackenzie Foley there on tomorrow's Australian Grand Prix. That is it. We are out of time. I'll be back here tomorrow myself and uh, plenty to bring you tomorrow, of course. Part two of Claire Shine on Hear Me Roar with Valerie Mulcahy. So make sure you tune in tomorrow evening from 6pm for that. Stevie G is on the way next. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. Cork's Red FM.